week of the earthly life of Jesus the Christ, a son of God, the son of man, the king of kings, the prince of peace, the Lord. It is the fullness of time. It is the time of times. It is the week of weeks that we now focus on for these next six chapters in Luke. In our own lives, we appreciate the fact that sometimes are more momentous than other times in our life. Sometimes we see a momentous moment coming, and other times they kind of sneak up on us and we're unaware until we either look back or realize that we're in the midst of something significant. Perhaps some new opportunity has been set before us, or some great event has taken place, or some great tragedy befalls us. And we see that that's, that's an important time. That was at a pivotal moment in our lives. Well, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it is not just a momentous time for the disciples, for Jesus himself, for those who happen to be living in Jerusalem on that particular day. It is the most momentous time in human history. It is the week of all weeks incomparable to any other in terms of what would take place at this time. This day should not have snuck up on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They should have been ready for it. All of biblical history, all of the life of Jesus, all of the words of Jesus, all of the statements of Jesus that I'm heading towards Jerusalem should have grabbed the attention of the people so that they recognized the moment, so that they saw the significance of what was taking place as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King entered in for this visit. In fact, Jesus allows, if you'll, if you'll allow this expression, he allows the spotlight to shine on him in a way that he doesn't always do. You remember that at earlier points in the gospel, there were times when Jesus worked a miracle, a healing uh, for someone, and he told the person to be very careful about whom you tell. Don't go around saying a bunch of things. Now, inevitably, the, the news of Jesus spread, and those things did get repeated. But there's a sense to which Jesus held some people back from making declarations about himself. And when you ask, well, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he want everybody to know? The answer, perhaps in the simplest form that we can say, is that the time wasn't right for everybody to know. More things had to take place before everybody knew. But now, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's very visible. Now, it's not trumpets and it's not fanfare in the grandest sense, but in terms of the ministry of Jesus, you see how different this is than anything that has preceded it up to this point. It's loud enough. It won't be like when he comes the next time with that kind of shout of the archangel, the cry, and the trumpet of God blasting. But it's pretty loud. And so he allows people 
to see who he is in a way that he hasn't necessarily done before and forces people to turn their attention to him. The attention turned to him for better or for worse. Luke invites us then in this week, that is to say this final week in the life of Jesus, to one more time look at Jesus, to look at what he is doing, to listen to Jesus, to consider and then respond. That's his last call to us as he works his way through this conclusion of the gospel. Now, where it is appropriate over the next few months, I will point out for us specific applications. There are some teaching sections in here where Jesus wants us to apply something very particularly. And of course, there's always a call for us to imitate Jesus Christ. But if you will, there's really one application for this portion of, of Scripture, for all of these six, five chapters that we've got before us. And that one application is to look at Him, to behold Him, to see all that is going on as He goes into Jerusalem, to see His humility and His humiliation, to hear His teaching, to watch the suffering, the rejection that will take place, to see His crucifixion, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His appearances, and finally His ascension. And then, in looking at that, to decide, will you join? Will you join with Him or will you rally against Him? And that's what we've got set before us even in a passage today. You're either going to join with Him or you're going to reject Him. One of those two things. So let's look at Jesus today in the passage that is before us. We'll look at this passage very simply, just following the structure of the passage itself. We'll look at His arrival, His status, and His heart as He comes into Jerusalem. First then, His arrival. When Jesus was an infant, His parents brought Him to Jerusalem. They brought Him to this city. In fact, they brought Him to the temple. They brought Him to the temple, if you recall it, for the purification, for the offerings that were appropriate. They brought Him to the temple because He was the firstborn of their children, the firstborn son. And they were offering, dedicating the firstborn son to the Lord, which should sound really familiar if you were paying attention at all to the Exodus series. They're doing what was commanded in Exodus. In light of what God has done, in light of God delivering his firstborn son, you dedicate the firstborn son to me. And so they bring Jesus into the temple. And we don't know the reaction of everybody in the temple at that time, but we know the reaction of two people. Simeon and Anna. They have been in the temple and waiting. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are looking for one who is to come. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, they recognize that infant and they declare, there's the one. And they rejoice. And they praise God and they say, God has done a marvelous thing. 
in allowing us to see this day. It is the glory for the people of Israel. It is a light to the nations that has come amongst us in the temple this day. Now, Simeon prophetically says as well that this one, as he comes into the temple, is appointed for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. And we're going to see Simeon's prophetic words worked out in this passage and in the days to come in the, in the life of Jesus. At 12, the age of 12, after one of his parents' regular visits to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, you will recall the story that they can't find Jesus as they are traveling back home, and they wonder where he is. They go back to Jerusalem, and they find Jesus in the place where he is at the end of our chapter. They find Jesus in the temple, and he says to them, didn't you know? Didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house? And I pointed this out at the time and, and can reinforce it again here. That is an incredibly important word on the lips of Jesus and for Luke as he records these things. Jesus recognized even at that point, 12, a divine imperative on his life. He must be in the Father's house. And back to Luke chapter 9 that we referenced before where he sets his face towards Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem, knowing all that awaits him in this city, knowing all that he will endure, he says, this is what I have to do. Jerusalem for Jesus is not just another destination, it's his destiny. It's where he must be. It is the epicenter. It is the ground zero of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is where everything must come to its completion. It's not a detour. It's not another stop along the way. It's not a wrong turn. It's not a case of bad timing. Should have come into a Jerusalem at another time when things were a little bit calmer. It's not random, and it's not an accident. Jesus didn't happen to come into Jerusalem at this particular time. The passage that is set before us drips with intentionality, with purpose, with courage, and determination. Jesus has made it clear since chapter 9, that he knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen to him there, and yet he's undaunted. He doesn't shy away from it, but he goes to this place. He comes to Jerusalem according to the perfect plan of the Trinity, the perfect plan of God, the must of the Trinity brings him here on this day, and yet he comes, as one writer puts it, and I'm only saying one writer because I forgot and I didn't write down the author's name when I wrote the quote down. He comes entirely unconstrained and free. His Father has given him authority to lay down his life and take it up. It belongs to him. The authority has been delegated by the Father to do it or not do it. 
and Jesus will do it. Unconstrained and free, he makes the decision to go into what will be his death and suffering. This section of Scripture, now speaking not only of the passage that I read for us, but of the rest of the chapters to follow, is permeated with both subtle and not-so-subtle references to the sovereignty of God in controlling everything that is happening in the life of Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem. From the historic prophecies that are being realized, I'll talk just a little bit more about these in a moment, but the historic prophecies, Zechariah 9.9 is what I put on the front of your bulletin, that your king's going to come in riding on a donkey. To the people crying out with the words of Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Prophecy is being fulfilled, sovereignly ordained prophecy now being fulfilled in their midst from, from things like that to the specificity of the instructions related to the securing of the donkey, of the mule that will carry him into the city. It's odd, isn't it? As, as you read that, you kind of wonder, why so much detail here? Why do we get all of this information about tying, untying, ask the owner, say to the owners this? It's a statement. It's a statement by God. It's a statement by Jesus to say, it's all according to my will. Nothing accidental is taking place here. And we understand it. You get the importance of why things like that would be recorded for us and why they would take place because one could look at the events of this week, and it wouldn't matter if you're now us 2,000 years away from these events or whether you were one who was living in Jerusalem at that particular time. You could, you could just chalk these things up to fate, to, to bad karma, to bad luck, to bad decisions, to a perfect storm of factors that have come together to create this tragedy. But the point of those details is to say, no, Jesus has come to this place. He has arrived in Jerusalem on time. The destiny happened right at the stroke of the time that the Trinity had planned it to take place with exactly the animal and exactly the people prepared in exactly the space where God had prepared it on purpose. What then is his status as he comes in? Our passage today points to the status of Jesus when he comes in to Jerusalem in two ways, as king and as prophet. As far as we have read, as far as I can recall it in the Gospels, Jesus has done a lot of walking in his life. Somebody can correct me on this later. I don't remember him riding at other points along the way. I suggest to you that Jesus doesn't procure a ride at this point because he's tired. Rather, something else is at work here. Why the mule? Why come into Jerusalem at this point on the mule? And the answer is this. It's because David instructed his son Solomon to come in for the coronation on a mule. David the king says to his son, you come in in this way. So Solomon comes in for the coronation on a mule. And now, great David's greater son, as he comes in, 
one who has wisdom greater than the wisest of Solomon, one who is wisdom itself, incarnate, comes in riding on the mule. Because so it was ordained, so Zechariah prophesied that it would be. And they take up Psalm 118, and they sing this psalm of exaltation as the king enters in. Be lifted up, you ancient gates. Be lifted up. Behold, the king of glory is coming in. That's a different psalm than Psalm 118, but the idea is the same. The king is coming into the city, and they get it, and everybody gets it. The ones who are proclaiming him get it, and the ones who are opposed to him get it. Tell them to stop. What are you letting them say that for? He comes as king. He comes as prophet. He is both uh, speaking prophetically and fulfilling prophecy. He's the object of prophecy as he comes in in this way. But he's speaking prophetically as well as he directs the disciples to the place where the mule is. He's speaking prophetically as he weeps and laments about Jerusalem, and then as he tells of the future of Jerusalem. And he's speaking prophetically as we close up this chapter when he is in the temple and he is teaching. He is the great king, the great prophet who has come into this city. And yet as we look at it, we see the authentic, the real dualities of this day, because he is exalted as he comes in and humbled at the same time. He is hailed as he comes in, and he's hounded as well. He's exalted because he comes in, and they're, they're laying their, their cloaks across the mule before they set him upon it, and then they're kind of walking along and, and putting those in front of Jesus along with the palms as he comes riding into the city. It's, it's the, the royal treatment, right? The, the red carpet being laid out for Jesus as he comes in as king. But he's humble. It's on a donkey. It's not in a chariot. In Zechariah 9, he compares the chariots of Egypt to your king who comes in riding on a donkey. He's hailed. Blessed is the king, who, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and he's hounded. Tell them to stop. And then at the end, all the principal people were seeking to destroy him, to put him to death. Think back to last week. Think back to the description of the royal wedding that we saw in Psalm 45. Here comes the king riding forth in majesty for truth and for justice. But remember the other thing that he's riding forth for? Meekness. Meekness and humility. And here's the picture. Here is the fulfillment, at least stage one of the fulfillment of the groom coming in. And as we, we read in Psalm 45, there are enemies about. The groom in Psalm 45 had a bow. He was ready for warfare. And so Jesus is ready for warfare also. Perhaps not ready in the way that they would have liked him to be ready with bow and physical 
sword in hand, but ready, nevertheless, to face the opposition. Finally, as we look at this, we see his heart as he comes into Jerusalem. We are never allowed to think of Jesus as unaffected. We are never allowed to think of him as a Stoic who walked through life, kept his chin up. His determination is in his sympathy and his compassion, even in this passage toward those who will reject him we see him weeping. We see a weeping, compassionate Savior as he looks at these people. He takes no pleasure in the pain that will befall Jerusalem. Critical to our understanding of God, he takes no warped delight in judgment, even when that judgment is deserved. 41 and 42, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known the day, this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Earlier in Luke, in chapter 13, we read these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. The, uh, the Deuteronomy reading that we did at the end of the Ten Commandments this morning has this same heart in it. We read this, oh, oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it may go well with them and with their descendants. Oh, that they had that. You hear that longing? Do you hear that heart from God? Even the verse that has formed for us this, this motto, walking the ancient paths together, is a call. It's a prophetic call that goes out from Jeremiah, and, and, and you can relate this to the way Jeremiah reacts to the news of the destruction, of the impending destruction of Jerusalem. God, through Jeremiah, cries out to the people, listen, there are ancient paths that I have laid out for you. Walk in them. You will find good. You will find rest for your souls if you will walk in them. And they said, we will not walk in them. We will not walk in those ways of yours. Jerusalem, you missed the time of your visitation, and you're culpable for it. You won't be able to say, I didn't know. You won't be able to say, wait, 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 I was, I, I was busy. I'm ready now. The time was at hand. The opportunity was there, and you missed. Now, one thing to say at this point, when, when Jesus here is speaking of Jerusalem, and this is true for the prophets as well, it doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be anyone in Jerusalem who responds positively to him. In the book of Acts, the preaching of Peter will be done in Jerusalem, and many will in fact respond. But overall, there will be this hardening, this hard heart that is presented against Jesus Peace was held out to you, Jerusalem. God did everything to bring peace, and you rejected it. 
but Jesus takes no fiendish delight in coming judgment. His heart mourns their rejection, even without denying their responsibility for it. But his heart is revealed in this compassion and also in the zeal. He zealously drives out the money changers as he goes into the city. Sometimes we could think, now wait a minute, those two things don't seem to go together, compassion and this kind of zeal that drives people out. But think about it for a moment, and you'll see that both those things go together. In John chapter 2, it was the first time that Jesus drove people out of the temple. And we read, read these words as they later reflected back on that incident, zeal for thy house will consume me. Zeal for my Father's house. Jesus is, in fact, zealous for His Father's glory. But to be zealous for His Father's glory and the purity of the temple is also to be zealous for the people whom God had given to Him. Why? Because the temple was the place. It was the meeting place. It was the crossroads where God and man met together and where peace was declared. It was to be a house of prayer, and, and Luke doesn't add this portion of the verse, but the other Gospels do. It was to be a house of prayer for the nations, a place of worship, a place where you came to know about the things of Yahweh and found peace, and they had made it and subverted the purposes. And so in order to reestablish peace, Jesus has to remove the enemies, to remove those who are using it for cross purposes and install himself in that seat to declare, to teach the Word of God, to reestablish that temple as that, which it should be, as that which it should be. And so he arrives at his destination, his destiny. The king, the prophet, humbled, exalted, opposed, full of compassion and truth and zeal for the time of the visitation had come. Brothers and sisters, the time of the visitation of Jesus Christ was this time. It was this week for all of human history, 2,000 years ago. The time of the visitation of Jesus Christ will come again. He will not come on a mule. His glory will not be disguised. He will come on a white horse. The sword will be there. And he will come with great glory and no one will miss it. But the time of the visitation not only was, not only will be, but the time of the visitation of Jesus Christ is now. It is at hand. Because Jesus takes up residence in the temple, and you are the temple. This is the time for you to dwell with Jesus Christ, not just sometime in the past, not just sometime in the future, but God has made His dwelling place among men through the power of the indwelling Spirit. And He's assembling you like living stones. Fellowship with Jesus who visits with you now. If you're here today and you do not yet believe in Jesus Christ, if you've not yet visited Him, you have today. Today is the time of your visitation. Don't miss 
the moment. Don't say, I'll get around to it. Don't say, some other day will come. Don't miss the time of your visitation, of the declaration of the Word of God, of the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the King, who has come in. Peace in Christ, the rule of Jesus, the words of the prophet are offered to you. Receive, believe, and live. Let's pray.